Titus chapter 2. Our first section is Titus 2, verses 1 to 10. Titus 2, 1 to 10. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, in order that the opponent may be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect." In this section of Titus chapter 2, the apostle turns his attention to Titus, the young minister, to direct him on how the people in the church should behave, how they should govern themselves as disciples of Christ. We notice a couple of things in the first verse, for example. We see that he, even though in the previous passage he has just explained at the end of chapter 1 that there are troublemakers, false teachers, people who cause dissensions, who claim to know God but deny Him by their deeds, verse 16 says. They claim to know God, but their actions, their deeds, show the opposite. He says, in contrast to that in verse 1, but as for you, there is to be a difference between the true believer and the false believer. The true believer is supposed to conduct his life in a certain way. And he is the pastor, the minister, the teacher, and the guide, the leader of the people, the flock that is under his charge. So he's supposed to model it, and he's supposed to teach it. He says there, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. It will be easy for Titus, and many like him, it'll be easy for Titus not to speak up when he sees contention and disarray all around him, because he doesn't want to get involved with it. We naturally don't want to get involved with strife and contention. We want to stay on the sideline and not have any of the contending parties point the finger at us. That's easy for us to do, to um, shrink back to cowardice and not speak up. But here, he's supposed to speak up. And notice also that the situation that Titus has before him in the island of Crete is a very dire situation. It's very dire because it says in Titus 1 verse 12, one of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. One of their own people, one of their own philosophers had said this about his own compatriots. He said that this is the way our people are. And so Titus is expected to speak in the midst of this situation. We think sometimes, well, I'll speak up if it will only help in this situation, if I have some hope that somebody's going to listen. But if people are so reprobate and so obstinate in the way that they behave, I'm not going to say anything because it's not going to help. That's often the perspective we have. But Titus is not supposed to do that. He's supposed to speak. He's supposed to speak up, preach, and teach the people. And he calls it whatever is fitting for sound doctrine. Whatever is in accordance with sound doctrine. Sound doctrine. We note here that he mentions the term sound doctrine, and then he's about to tell us how people should practice the Christian life. When we hear the word doctrine, often we think, And often it is said that doctrine has to do with theology. Doctrine has to do with what we know of God and of salvation, and it's just restricted to those issues. But not so. In the Bible, doctrine is not only related to God, but what God expects of us, how we ought to live. If we belong to Christ, what our life should 
convey, what our life should display in reference to Christ. Doctrine, therefore, does have to do with good deeds or the manifestation of the Holy Spirit's work in our life. Notice, too, he says sound doctrine. Sound or healthy, wholesome doctrine. This implies that there is unsound doctrine. It implies that there are things that are unhealthy and destructive for the spiritual life of the people. We have to know the difference. We have to know the distinction. He said some of this distinction in the preceding passage in Titus 1, 10 to 16. He spoke some of it, and he will speak in contrastive terms here in chapter 2, but also he will do so in chapter 3. This reminds us that the Bible, whenever it tells us to pursue that which is sound, pursue that which is true, in the light, that which is righteous, there is always a contrast. The, the Bible doesn't just say, pursue the light and not explain what light is. And it doesn't say, pursue the light and not tell us what darkness is. It tells us both. It tells us both because we need clarity. We need to know a clear distinction between that which is true and that which is false. That's why he says it is sound doctrine. Then, in verses 2 to 10, we also see that the church is made up of different people. We have old men and young men. We have old women and young women. And we have slaves and masters. We have slaves and masters. All kinds of people in the same church. That is, church in the Bible is never conceived of being just for 20-year-olds or just for 70-year-olds or just for men, or just for women, or any other kind of construction, false construction, that people erect in order to establish a church. Churches are supposed to include people of all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of, of uh, strata, all kinds of ranks, whether they are rich or poor, young or old, uh, whatever their ethnic, ethnic background is, it doesn't matter. It, it says in Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, that the church is made up of Jew and Gentile, or in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, of Jew and Greek. Every person, anyone who is willing to believe and uh, the gospel, repent of his sins, he is supposed to be the one that comes into church, and the church should be for everybody like that. Verse 2. He now gets direct and specific. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. He directs the older men first. The older men, you would think naturally, because of age, because of experience, that the older men, and being men, you might think that they would have already attained to all of these virtues, that they would have already uh, thrown off all of the sins of youth, that they would not be pursuing the lusts of the flesh and all of the indulgences of, of men that they do as, as youth, as young men. But that's not necessarily the case. It's not necessarily the case. It should be the case, but it isn't necessarily that. Therefore, he exhorts them to be temperate. That means practice some self-control, have some restraint, this will have to be not only in, with the use of the mouth, but all of the senses and the functions of the body. There must be temperance. There must be self-control. People at this age, at the, as older men, should not be out of control in any way. They should consider where they are out of control and then bring those to God and repent of sin. Be dignified as well. Isn't it a shame when there is an old man who leads an undignified life? When there is some scandal, something that's publicly known about him, about his behavior? No, that should not be a characteristic at all of Christian old men. It should be dignity. They should be carrying their life, their marriage, their family, their work, whatever they do, they have to have dignity with it. They should also be sensible. Sensible. If they are not sensible, then they're not practicing sense or common sense. They're not using their brains properly. They are not using their mind for things that are obvious. 
and especially those things that are spiritually sensible. If they're not spiritually sensible, then what's wrong with them? Have they not heard what the Bible says about this or that topic, about this or that conflict, about this or that uh, value? Have they not understood? They need to be sensible. They need to have some control of their mind and their senses to know the difference between good and evil. As it says in Hebrews 5, 11 to 14, being accustomed to this word of righteousness, we have our senses trained to discern good and evil. Hebrews 5, 11 to 14 speaks of that. Sound in faith. Sound in faith. It needs to be the case that old men are models of faith. And they need to be sound in faith. They need to understand the faith, that is the gospel properly. And they need to also not only explain it, but also live it out. Be sound in this faith so that there is no contradiction between what they say they believe and the way that they live. That was the problem in Titus 1.16. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Instead, they must be sound in faith. The Bible also teaches in Romans 14, 23, that whatever is not from faith is sin. Whatever is not from faith is sin. Living a life of faith is incumbent upon all of us and to be sound in that faith. To ask constantly, is, is what I'm thinking, is what I'm doing, is what I'm teaching, is what I'm saying, is what I'm advising people, is it according to the faith? Is it sound in the faith? And that faith is found in Scripture. In love as well. Older men need to be sound in love. Love of God and love of neighbor. This is what love is. 1 Corinthians 13 definitely describes being sound in love toward God and toward our neighbor. 1 John, the letter of 1 John is devoted to this topic of how we can know if we truly love God and truly love our neighbor. Or as John says there, love our brother. Because there he, his immediate audience is the church, which would be our brothers, loving our brothers in the way that we should. And if men do not love their brothers, they don't love God. It's impossible to say, I love God, but I can't love my brother. It's impossible. 1 John 4.19 addresses this topic, that it is impossible for us to be sound in love, but hate our brothers. 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. He's saying, if we truly love God, we will love our brother. This is the kind of sound love that needs to be displayed. And perseverance. Older men are to be those who model perseverance. Perseverance, endurance, steadfastness. They're supposed to remain in the faith until the end. It, they should remain in the faith until the end. Once in a while, uh, we hear of how older men, whether they are pastors or deacons or elders, whatever they are called, and they have some leadership position in the church, once in a while we hear that so-and-so elder or so-and-so deacon, he had been a deacon for 20 years, and then at the age of 55, he abandoned his wife. And he gave up and he said, I never really believed in any ways. We hear of those kinds of incidents. that Those things happen. That should not happen. It should not happen because those who have true faith persevere until the end. In Matthew 24, 13, He who endures till the end shall be saved. Therefore, it's necessary for the men to model this perseverance and endurance. It has to persevere until the end. And they needed, men need to be goaded and prodded along to make sure 
that they are persevering, that there is no distraction, no temptation, even in old age, that drives them away from Christ, that entices them to do evil. And we cannot also say, with this lack of perseverance, well, you don't understand. I never really had this or that in life. Or my wife never really did this or that for me. Or God, He never provided this or that for me. And therefore, you don't understand. And therefore, they justify wickedness in old age. However, the Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, 10, 12, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. Endurance. He mentions that again. He's saying these things that people think, they think this way because they think they are beyond falling. They're beyond apostasy, but they're not. Everybody must be careful or else he might fall. And the temptations that we face are common to man, Paul says. They're not unique. They are common to man. We have this ability within all of us to commit this or that sin. We don't always carry out those same sins, but we have that ability. These temptations are common to man. And that, he says, God's faithful and will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also. There's always a way of escape in temptation. People say, no, it's unique to me. No, it's too hard for me. No, I can't overcome it. But that's not true. Not according to the Bible. Amen. They're supposed to overcome it, and God has provided the way to overcome it so that we may be able to endure it, to withstand it, to fight it, and reject it. This is the kind of perseverance that must be in older men. Now verse 3, Titus 2, 3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. The older women, likewise, have a responsibility. It's not as though only the men have a godly responsibility, but women also do. Women do, and even the old ones do. It doesn't do to say, well, she is old and she's done her time with the children or this or that and she's gone through struggles in life. Therefore, we can excuse their behavior and that they are recalcitrant. They won't listen. So we'll just give up on the old women. That mentality people have too. But we should not. We should not. He says older women likewise. They too have obligations if they claim the faith, if they claim to believe the gospel. They're supposed to be reverent in their behavior. He hits a key issue here. Reverent in their behavior. It is easy for women, and even older women, to be irreverent in their behavior, and especially toward their own husbands. Irreverent and especially toward their own husbands. In fact, the Apostle Paul speaks of this in Ephesians 5, 33. Ephesians 5, 33. Having explained obligations between husband and wife, he now summarizes in Ephesians 5.33, Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife, even as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. Let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. This word respect in the original language, the Greek word there, for respect, is the same Greek word that's in Ephesians 5.21 that says, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. That means it literally says, and let the wife see to it that she fear her husband. And in 1 Peter 3.6, and thus Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do likewise, without being frightened by any fear. This is the kind of reverence that older women are supposed to 
have towards their own husbands, but also generally speaking, they should be reverent, they should be fearing, they should be God-fearing, and show this kind of respect that is due to their husbands. Verse 3, not malicious gossips. Not malicious gossips. A gossip is someone who likes to go around telling about the personal lives of other people when it is unnecessary to even mention those things. It's unnecessary. They like stories. They like sensational stories. That's what a gossip is. And in this case, it's a malicious gossip. Not only do they like to share those stories, but they like to share them in order to defame other people and to elevate themselves. They like to be the announcers of the first news on the one hand, and then on the other hand, they use that announcement in order to degrade and defame other people. They're malicious. They don't have good intentions. They're not saying, let's pray for so-and-so when they announce it. They're not saying, let's go help so-and-so when they announce it. They're not saying, how can we make sure that we not fall into the same sin as so-and-so? That's not their purpose. Their purpose is just to degrade the other person. It's a malicious gossip mentality. This ought not to be the case. And this is often what happens in the case of women. They love to gab and they love to gad. They love to gab talking and they love to gad or gather about here and there going places outside of the home in order to do these kinds of things. This is why the Apostle Paul also said the same in 1 Timothy chapter 5, 513. He says, and at the same time they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies talking about things not proper to mention. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. For some have already turned aside to follow Satan. Paul, Paul said that a woman who behaves that way and refuses to repent has already turned aside to follow Satan. That, That kind of a woman follows Satan, follows the devil, and no follower of the devil goes to heaven. So that's how important it is not to be a malicious gossip. Then he proceeds to say, nor enslaved to much wine. Nor enslaved to much wine. Wine in the Bible, or the use of wine itself, is not condemned. It's not condemned, the use of wine, but in slavery to wine is condemned. Addiction to wine is condemned. 2 Peter 2.19, for promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whatever a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. Here, women should not be enslaved to this wine or much wine. And it's not only that women should not be doing this or any of these other characteristics. He's just hitting on some prominent ones that are characteristic of older men and older women. So, for example, he already told Titus that the overseer in Titus 1.7 should not be addicted to wine. Addicted to wine or enslaved to much wine, he's talking about the same issue. There should be no drunkenness, no addiction to alcohol. Teaching what is good. Notice we, we have here that old women are to be teachers. But not teachers in the church context in a general sense, because that's what the elder or pastor is supposed to do, according to Titus 1, verse 9, and Titus, uh, uh, or 1 Peter, uh, 1 Timothy, chapter 3, verse 2, be able to teach, 1 Timothy 3, 2, and Titus 1, 9. This is for the pastor to do. But she's supposed to teach what is good to young women and to children, it says. Teach what is good. We have already said that there's, if there's good, there must be evil. So she must know what, the, what difference there is between good and evil and teach the good 
so that she can inculcate good in young women and children. And we find that in verse 4. She's teaching that they may, they, the old women, may encourage the young women, old women teaching, young women. What are they teaching them? To love their husbands, to love their children. To love husband and to love children. Now, this is astonishing because typically we assume that when a wife has a husband, she loves her husband. And she'll do whatever it takes to love her husband. And typically we assume that when children are born of a woman, that the mother will naturally love her children. Now, sometimes that happens, but many times it does not happen, and it does not happen in the right way. Loving the husband and loving children does not happen in the right way. This is why Paul needs to tell them and instruct them when they're young, when the young women are there and they are newly married and have new children, that this is what they must do. It's incumbent upon them. It's their obligation to love their husband and to love their children. It's easy for them to get distracted. Wives can be distracted with their own parents, with their own siblings, with other people's uh, lives and affairs. They can be very distracted by that, with the cousins and the relatives and this or that aunt and uncle. They can be very distracted by all of that and not love their own husband by doing their duty toward their husband, managing the home, loving him, um, marital relations. These things are uh, obligatory for wives towards their husband. This is how they show that they love their husbands. Now, I just commented very briefly on the marital relations. That's First, uh, first Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 to 7, especially verses 3, 4, and 5 explain that, that the wife's body does not belong to her, but to her husband, and the husband's body does not belong to him, but to his wife. They belong to each other in that way. So this is the love that she should manifest toward her husband. In first, or Ephesians 5, 28 and 29, there it explains that the husband is to love his wife even as himself. He who loves his wife loves himself. The apostle applied the second greatest commandment and told the husband to love his wife just like that. Well, in the same way, the wife is supposed to love her husband as herself. Because they are one flesh. If they are one flesh, then she is also obligated to love her husband as she loves herself. That's where her devotion should be. Also, we may have heard at one point or, or another that the Bible, the Bible commands in Ephesians 5 for husbands to love their wives. But some have said, the Bible never commands the wife to love her husband as though it's a lesser responsibility or a lesser obligation. But that's not true. true. It's not true at all. Right here, when he says in Titus 2.3, older women likewise are to be reverent. When he says are to be reverent, that's a circumlocution or another way of stressing or expressing an imperative, a command. If somebody is to be this way, that means it's a, it's a must. It's an obligation. They're supposed to be that way. So in that way, we have a different kind of way of expressing a command right here in Titus 2.3. But also, if the second greatest commandment is a command, and we know it is because it's called the second greatest commandment, then the wife is to love her husband. It, she's commanded to love her husband. You don't need an exact Quote, husbands love your wives, and then wives love your husbands, in order to get the same point across. You can say it in different ways. Then, oh, and then the corollary. How about if the wife is supposed to, is supposed to respect her husband, so does that mean that the husband can show disrespect to his wife? No, it doesn't mean that. So people who look for ways like this and say, well, wives are never commanded to love their husbands, they're looking for excuses to practice sin. Right. 
No, we're not supposed to do it and practice any kind of sin or make excuses for that. Then it says here in, in Titus 2.4, Titus 2.4, to love their children. The young women are to love their children. Not only love them by bathing them, by feeding them, by teaching them how, how to uh, do this or that physical thing, not only providing for them with material and physical things, that is true for which mother would be considered a good mother if she did not feed her children. Right. right. We know that. That's self-evident. Whether believer or unbeliever, whether Christian or pagan, we, we know that that's what a mother should do. He is, of course, including that, but I think he's including more than that. Sure. He's including more than that because in 2 Timothy chapter 1, he commended Timothy's mother and grandmother. 2 Timothy 1, verse 5, he says, For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. Lois and Eunice taught Timothy. We know that they taught him from chapter 3, 2 Timothy 3, 15. And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. We know that his grandmother and mother taught Timothy from childhood the sacred writings, that is the scriptures of the Old Testament, so that they taught him to believe in Christ Jesus. Jesus. This is uh, the way that young mothers teach their children. We continue. It says, verse 5, Titus 2.5, To be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. These women are also to be sensible. That is, practice common sense and also, and especially, practice spiritual sense. Spiritual sense, know the scriptures and have their minds, and especially in this case, their emotions, controlled by the scriptures. Not by their circumstances, not by their ambitions, but by the scriptures. Be sensible. It's easy for them to be tricked and duped into doing wrong. For example, it says, Second Timothy chapter 3, 2 Timothy 3, 5, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, and avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. False teachers come into houses and entrap weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses. As well, 1 Timothy 4, 1 Timothy 4, 6. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Therefore, they should be sensible, controlled by the scriptures. Pure, pure. It is possible, especially in our day, we see how, how rampant it is, that even women, even women have degraded themselves. They have degraded themselves in mind, in their mouth, in their movements, in every way, they have degraded themselves and they behave just like some of the most perverse, reprobate men. They behave that way and talk that way. That should not be the case. It should be characteristic of women that they are pure, that they understand what it means, first, to be a woman, and then, secondly, to be a Christian woman, that their behavior 
should not have any impurity, any defilement, any kind of promiscuity, no looseness of mouth, nothing. They should watch their words and their actions. Workers at home. We read earlier 1 Timothy 5, 13 to 15, where the apostle also said there that they should be workers at home. A home worker, or we used to say a homemaker. Nowadays, that is a bad word, homemaker. Or a housewife. Even a housewife is even worse than a homemaker these days. But that's what people meant in the past, and that's what the Bible means. A worker at home. A home worker that is not here and there doing things that the husband should be doing, earning the bread for the family. They shouldn't be out and about like that. The husband should be doing that. That implies that the husband should not be lazy. He should not be a deadbeat. He should be earning the money for the family. And worker at home implies, too, that she's at home working with the children, maintaining the house and the children, rearing them and guiding them, teaching them and preparing them for life, teaching them morals, teaching them responsibilities, teaching them how to treat one another. That's what they should be doing in their own houses. They should be teaching kindness. Kindness. Not contention, not bitterness, um, not fickleness, but kindness. Kindness is also lacking in many, many women. We, we think that men can be rude and crude, but women are gentle and kind. Sometimes we have that kind of assumption, but that's not necessarily the case. In fact, many times women can put on a show on the outside, outside of their house, but on the inside of their house, they are some of the meanest, unkind people that anybody's ever seen. It should not happen that way. It should not be that way. They must practice kindness in the home and be subject to their own husbands. Be subject to their own husbands. The Bible uses this phrase to be subject or to um, be in submission and even the term to obey to express the same thing. That is, the husband is the head and the husband is the one who leads and guides who teaches, who is the authority and the final authority in the house, and the wife is to be obedient to him. It says, be subject to their own husbands. Even when the husband is disobedient to the word, even when the husband is an unbeliever, the Christian wife especially should submit to him. Not if he's calling on her to sin, but in all other things. 1 Peter 3, verse 1. 1 Peter 3, 1. In the same way, just as Christ submitted to the Father in the previous chapter, in the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful Behavior, And let not your adornment be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry and putting on dresses. But let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way in former times the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Thus, Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children, if you do what is right, without being frightened by any fear. Well, we note here in verse 1, it says, be submissive. And then it says in verse 5, being submissive. And then in verse 6, thus Sarah obeyed Abraham. Obedience and submission are synonyms of the wife living a godly life and obeying her husband, except in sin. This is characteristic of a Christian woman. And why? Titus 2.5 says that the word of God may not be dishonored. 
that the word of God, the gospel, she, the, this woman, the Christian woman, claims to believe in the gospel, the word of God. But if she lives contrary to that, and she is disrespecting her husband. She's not submissive to her husband. She's unkind to her husband. She's not taking care of the house. She's not taking care of the children. If she is a malicious gossip, if she is behaving like that, then why would an unbelieving husband give any credibility to the gospel when the gospel has not changed his wife? Right. He won't give any credibility to her. He won't listen. But if she lives in conformity to the gospel, the, the husband will notice his wife. And I have heard of cases that in due time that the husband comes around. The husband is softened by the behavior of his godly wife and he comes around. It doesn't happen all the time, but God does use it as a means to convince the husband of his unbelief and his need to believe in the gospel. Otherwise, the word is being dishonored. Not only toward the husband, but to everyone else who sees this hypocritical Christian wife. He continues in verses 6 to 8 now to address the young men. The young men, and Titus is included in this. We usually think of Timothy being a young pastor, but according to this passage, Titus also was a young pastor. It says in verse 6, Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself, there we have it, show yourself, Titus, to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, in order that the opponent may be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. The young men too, they're not excluded from this. And by implication, the young women. The young men are not excluded from these kinds of character qualities, by these virtues, these fruits of the Holy Spirit. They're not exempt from it. In fact, he says, urge them. Urge them. That, me that speaks of urgency. It, it speaks of the imminent necessity to behave this way too, even for the young ones. The young men cannot say, well... You know, I'm only 20 or I'm only 25 and I haven't experienced all of the fun and games of life. I haven't sowed my wild oats yet. Let me do that first and then when I'm 30 or then when I'm married or then when I have my first child, I'll change. They can't do that. They, they can't do that. In fact, if they engross themselves into some sins, they may never overcome those sins. Amen. They may be entrapped till the day that they die and go to hell. Right. So he says, urge the young men. Now is the day to repent. Now is the time. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. They too are to be sensible. Sensible in the way that we've just explained above. The young men are too to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds. Even young men can be an example of good deeds. This reminds us of 1 Timothy 4, 4.12. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Timothy and Titus are to be examples of true believers by their conduct, even though... They are young. With purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, in order that the opponent may be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Here he repeats in similar terms that was in, mentioned in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. This is how they are supposed to conduct themselves so that there is no slander, that there's no blasphemy, no blasphemy against God and the Word of God by the people who are observing. We fail many times to understand the implication of the way that we live on the people around us. You know that when we, whether we're old or young, pastors or parishioners, 
the way we live sets the precedent and sets the tone on how other people will live. Be all the people around us. They look to us and people, human nature, sinful human nature, is always looking for excuses to excuse their behavior. So what will they do? They will immediately latch on to some prominent person in their life, a teacher, a pastor, a parent, a politician. They'll latch on to somebody and say, well, he did it, and so that means it's okay. That's why he's saying repeatedly that the Word of God uh, may not be dishonored, verse 5. Or in verse 8, do this beyond reproach in order that the opponent may be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. We have to be mindful of it, that our life, day by day, must conform to the life of Christ. It must. Verses 9 and 10. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Bond slaves themselves are to be subject. They're supposed to obey their own masters in everything. It's easy if there is a slave who has a, an unbelieving master. If, let's say it's a Christian slave with an unbelieving master to say, well, he's an unbeliever. Why should I listen to an unbeliever? I shouldn't put myself under the yoke of an unbeliever like that. I, I, I know better. I've been saved. God has shown me. I know the Bible. He doesn't know the Bible. So I shouldn't obey him. The apostle is saying, no, that's not the case. And then a Christian slave might say to a Christian master, well, he's a Christian now. So since he's a Christian, he's a brother. And because brothers are on the same level, I don't need to show him respect. I don't need to listen to everything he says. So Christian slaves can make two excuses. The master is an unbeliever, so I'm not going to listen. Or the master is a believer, he's a brother, so he's not above me, he's on an equal level with me. Therefore, I don't need to listen. Yet the apostle says that's not the case. That kind of thing brings about disobedience. Brings about disobedience and it brings about disorder. There there is, in this chapter, Ephesians chapters 5 and 6, give examples of how wives need to submit to husbands and how children need to submit to parents and how slaves need to submit to masters. This is the way of societal orderliness. This is the way teaching happens. This is the way uh, uh, examples are, are made. This is the way we practice our Christian life. And even men, generally speaking, according to 1 Peter chapter 2, even men, males, adult males, we have Submission that's required of us toward other men in society. Whether they are pastors or politicians, we have to submit to them to the extent that they don't tell us to sin. If they tell us to sin, then we don't submit to them. Just like a wife would not submit to a husband making her sin. Or children submit to parents who make them sin. But when they're not making us sin, there needs to be obedience and submission. This is what the Apostles is teaching here in everything. Not whether you like it or not, not whether it's convenient or not, but in everything. Just do it, he's saying. Be well-pleasing. Be well-pleasing. In Ephesians 6 and in Colossians 3, we're supposed to be doing it from the heart. We're supposed to be doing it as to the Lord. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve, he says in Colossians 3. This is the kind of attitude that should be there, even when the situation is difficult, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative. Don't pick a fight. Don't quarrel. Don't be contentious. Don't be fault-finding. Well, if you could have said it in a nicer way, Master, then I I would have done it. But you didn't say it in a nice way. You didn't say, please. Therefore, I didn't do it. No, don't be argumentative. Just do it. Verse 10, not pilfering. Not pilfering. The problem that many, many employers have 
is that their own employees steal from the company. Sure. That is the fundamental problem. Yes, customers steal, and that causes havoc in companies, but employees steal, too, from their own employers. That's what he's talking about here. Slaves, don't pilfer. Don't pilfer. Don't do that with your masters. Yeah, your master entrusts you with many responsibilities, and he goes here or there on trips, and he's not always supervising you, but don't pilfer. Be honest. Know that these goods right here before you don't belong to you. They belong to somebody else. Therefore, treat them as another's property and don't steal them. But showing all good faith that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. When they show or demonstrate good faith, they adorn, they dress up the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. God is our Savior. He saved us from a certain life. He saved us from darkness. He saved us from wretchedness. He saved us from wickedness. So how are we going to adorn this doctrine, the, the salvation that we have now, how are we going to dress it up? How are we going to clothe it? We're going to have to clothe it. Our profession has to be clothed with practice. It has to be clothed with the practice, how we live, how we show it in our life. Because if it's not there, then it's false. Right. He keeps hitting home on this point. He's done so now for the, at least the third time in this passage. Why? Because in Titus 1.16, he said, They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. We cannot be an empty professor of faith. We have to be a true professor of faith, and we show true profession by how we live. And that's how we clothe or adorn God's gospel. The gospel, when it's first heard, there is not usually a lot of manifestation of it. But after it's first heard and believed, then there has to be a, a production. There has to be the fruit of the Spirit. There has to be some kind of consequence and change in the lives of the people for it to vindicate the message. Our fruit vindicates the message that this was good ground and this is a good uh, seed and it will produce good fruit in your life. He's going to expand on that in verses 11 to 15. He'll expand on this idea that we need to adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.